Hello and welcome to the Arrow Video Podcast with Sam and Dan. Uh, my name is Dan Martin, special effects artist and podcaster, and I'm joined as ever by my lovely co-host... Sam Ashurst, and uh, I also do a podcast. Yeah, tell us about it. Well, it's called the Arrow Video Podcast. Sounds and good. We, uh, we watch films that are in the Arrow Video Library, and we talk about them, and we make <laughs> recommendations. And if this is your first one, Welcome. Welcome. To the Arrow video, for fuck's sake. <laughs> right, sorry. <laughs> okay, so, uh, what are we talking about this week, Sam? Uh, this week we are talking about King of New York, which was my choice. Yeah, it's a cracker. Um, oh, you like it? I fucking love it. Oh, okay, amazing. Um, so it's in my top three Ferraras? That's amazing, because for some reason, I think I've misremembered this, I thought you didn't like it. No, not we, at all. I we watched it. it a while ago. It might just be because you fell asleep. Yeah, but that's because I've seen it thousands that's of times. Standard, that's standard, that's <laughs> standard. Yeah. Oh, that's good, that's good. Yeah, so no, this is going to be one, because we don't discuss, uh, dear listener, we do not discuss uh, how we feel about films before we go on to the mic to record stuff. So I am finding this out for the first it's a time. a thing called being professional. Oh, well, <laughs> imagine that. <laughs> um, but yeah, okay, so uh, tell me about the first time you saw this film. I think it was probably the second Ferrara I ever saw. Oh, okay, what was the first? Driller Killer. Of course, yeah. Um, yeah. Also on Arrow. It, it's obviously, it's quite different from Driller Killer. Um, Very different. I got hold of it from a, just like a British rental VHS. I don't think it was ever cut in this country, was it? Uh, um, I don't think, don't so, think so, no. Um, obviously, it wasn't quite what I, what I expected, but I did really enjoy it. Uh, I think I enjoyed it quite superficially. Because it's just very cool. Like everyone in it's very cool. That it is. Look, it looks nice. They're beautiful. It's beautifully lit. Walken's fucking smooth as silk. Yeah. Uh, they're all wearing black all the bloody time. It's really cool. And then it's also really violent, which mid teenage me thought was brilliant. Absolutely. Um, and um, I think cool is probably the best way to describe it. It was definitely kind of the primary focus for Ferrara. The disc, the Arrow disc, has an amazing commentary oh, from yeah, him. Oh, yeah, it's fantastic. And um, there's one moment where, um, like, quite early on, um, someone gets shot, like, in a phone booth. And um, Ferrara says, um, this is all phony shit. Sunglasses at night. This is the phony Mahoney baloney here. <laughs> and then the, the guy that's kind of trying to steer him in the commentary but doesn't really succeed. Yeah. He says, why do you have them wear sunglasses? Because it's like, okay, if it's phony, then it's your choice. Why, why have you done that? And he basically says, because you're not going to kill a guy wearing sunglasses and not have sunglasses. Because everybody's so fucking cool, it don't even matter. How can you be cool if you don't have shades on? And so, you know, that was the thought process. Logic be damned, um, you know, it, it's it's brilliant. Yeah, it, it's another... Ferrara does great audio commentaries. Yeah. Uh, the one he did for Driller Killer is fantastic as well. He's probably more fucked up in the Driller Killer one. Yeah, he just does exactly whatever the fuck he wants. There's I mean, a there's... long diatribe on Driller Killer where he talks about the only reason he made the movie was to fuck someone. Right. Like, and he started in porn. You've got to remember, his yeah, first yeah, two yeah. movies were hardcore, oh, which yeah, he yeah. starred in. Yeah, yeah, I know. And then, yeah, yeah. and then he plays the rapist in Angel of Vengeance yeah. under the same pseudonym that he used to direct hardcore porn. Yes. So, like, yeah, the man is 
it's murky. The man has some problems. It's very murky, but you know, the no filter means that, you know, it's one of the most honest oh, yeah. and actually hilarious commentaries you'll ever hear. I mean, there's this whole amazing thread about how hilarious he finds it that Steve Buscemi's in the movie. Oh yeah, that's absolutely <laughs> fantastic. Like there's a bit where basically every time Buscemi's on screen, he just starts laughing yeah, to himself. He's, and he's remembering <laughs> give Bush, the direction he gives Buscemi is stand behind all the black guys. Well, like, no, you're not too e- obvious. Not even that, it was like, like, at the back. stand at the back, stand right at the back. Yeah. And then he's like, where is he? Where is he? There he is. And then starts <laughs> and then laughing. starts pissing himself again. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. But, you know, one of the things that's kind of really interesting about King of New York is that it's kind of a, a pioneering film. Um, it was badly marketed at the time. Um, yeah. It should have been marketed as a black movie, basically. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't. It was... Um, marketed as kind of a generic Scorsese-style gangster thing, yeah. movie. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, not long after that, New Jack City came out, you yeah. know, Boys and Hurt, like, all of these... And, like, New Jack City was huge. Yeah, he talks about the fact that they should have had New Jack City's marketing. They yeah, should have had New it, Jack City's branding, and that would have made the film huge. And yet, it, it has, you know... Uh, a great black cast. It has uh, an amazing soundtrack. He was kind of a pioneer when it came to using hip hop. Um, yeah. It's kind of the one of the earliest films to use hip hop, if not the first potentially. And yeah, it's, it's it's that's part of why it appealed to me. I mean, when I first saw it, it was in the early nineties when it came out on VHS, same as you. And at that time, I was obsessed with Scorsese and gangster films in general. And I was obsessed with hip-hop. And so here comes to this To see film. those two m- yeah. married here. Yeah, and starring Christopher Walken. Um, and as Ferrara says on the commentary, this is the coolest motherfucker who ever lived. Oh, yeah, he's <laughs> so fucking cool. It. It. Yeah, but he was disappointed with um, with King of New York. I don't know. Do you know this? Like, Yeah, he, he, he I don't... I've heard that. I don't remember what yeah. his problem with it was. So he basically, he he feels like he failed the character. Um, he'd like to have another go at it, or he certainly did when he did this interview. He basically feels like he didn't... There wasn't enough layers to the character. Mm. There wasn't um, enough emotion on his face. Um, I think, you know, he was just kind of having fun playing the character, and that kind of reflects in the character, whereas he should be have a bit more tragedy, have a bit more sadness in the lead-up. It's interesting because obviously the the tone for Walken was picked in edit. Ferrara talks about having another edit of the film that he just he personally has, well, that, which is done entirely from the crazy takes when Walken's yeah. doing it as fake Pacino, dialing it up to eleven, and so he's got a version of the movie where Frank White's just like fucking off the wall crazy all the time, which makes it sound like Walken was doing options quite a no, lot. No, no, so. You think that was just a joke? That totally, he did? it wasn't a usable option, and in fact, Walken reacted to that that cut was going to be the one that was released. Really? And Walken was like, what the fuck are you doing? I did that. We did that for fun. Don't use any of this. And so they recut it. Um, oh, I hadn't heard Walken react to that. Either. Yeah. So that's interesting. I'd love to I see would, it. Yeah, least. I was about yeah. to say exactly that. Yeah, I'd absolutely love to see that cut. But, um, but yeah, for me, it, this is one of my favourite Arrow discs it's great um, i think it's the first time this is the first time i've watched the arrow version yeah so it's really clean looks really we actually good. watched yeah no we, we watched it together no, it was a dvd no no it was it was my was Blu-ray. it the, was it your yeah, blu-ray yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay um, well, i really did sleep through it because it <laughs> yeah. a new experience but yeah no it does look amazing and um 
and the extras like it's not just the commentary there's a fucking oh, yeah. amazing interview with it with Ferrara um like it's like half an hour long and it's different information to the commentary um some of it's the same information but you know oh it's so good like and and the interviewer it's a french interviewer and at one point she says to him um something like you know she asks about uh, a king of new york prequel or a sequel or something like that and um you know he gives kind of an answer and she says you know that she'd rather see that than the film he's working on next <laughs> do you remember what the film was that he's working on at the time she doesn't say because he i was talking I remember it's I was one talking. in france yeah he did a state a spate in france he sort of annoyed some american backers and lost his his funding deal in the states and went over to france and started making movies over there for a while yeah yeah, and I've I've not seen any of his really recent stuff, but like this was definitely, yeah, this is yeah definitely one of my three favorites. I think it's um it's a great film, and he talks about a oh, fuck who's the director who said he wanted it to finish with uh, like a scene. Oh, Michael it. Mann. Michael Mann, thank you. Yeah, Michael Mann, and it's because Michael Mann essentially wanted to be able to do a sequel to it. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, yeah, which is great. I would fucking love that I'd so really much. Like see. I'm not the biggest Michael Mann fan in the world, but I would love to see Michael Mann do a sequel to oh King of New York. God, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I am a big Michael Mann fan, like I even like Miami Vice, but um yeah, god, I'd absolutely love to see that. Um yeah, and and there's a, a sort of quite a long documentary about his sort of career in general yeah. where it's it's talking to a lot of his collaborators and they go through it film by film. So, you know, it's a really great insight into how he works. And and actually, you know, for all the bluster on the commentary, um, and, you know, there's a lot of ridiculous stuff that gets said in it, but it is actually one of these commentaries which is useful for budding filmmakers. Oh, yeah. There's a bit where um, th- there's a lot on the lighting, yeah, and you know he even at one point names the specific color gel that they used yeah, in yeah. in one of the key scenes. So it's really useful for filmmakers. And he even you know he he the no filter thing again. He points out his mistakes, yeah. or well, the crew's mistakes. Yeah, <laughs> like there's a bit Able where there's make mistakes. Yeah, there's a bit where um, it it feels like he's noticing for the first time that there's flowers in a shot, and he's yeah. like, "What the fuck he's are talking, they doing?" There? He's talking about how he. He did either. He didn't have a production designer, but he did have a costume designer. He was basically doing the production design himself, and the costume designer was. He's like, "Don't bring me fucking options. Just put everyone in black. I don't want to see any other black." And there's uh, and there's that that's happening. It's a beautiful scene. He talks extensively about the lighting in that scene as well, talking about using canvases as diffusers. Yeah, which is gorgeous. Yeah, it does yeah. look so golden. It's beautiful. Yeah. Um. But everyone's wearing black, and as uh, and he's saying, "I don't want any fucking color in this scene. It's all black. It's all going to be cool. They're all wearing black." And it goes past uh, the the camera tracks past some uh, some colourful flowers on a table. And he's like, ah, fuck! I don't know how those flowers got in there. Maybe they were re- there already. And then at that moment, someone in a red shirt is in the foreground, and you just hear him go. <gasps> <laughs> and yeah, and and in that scene as well, like, oh my god, there's that bit where um, he starts to say. I think the the moderator kind of distracts him or something, but he starts to say about one guy in the dinner table scene where he's like, this guy couldn't act to save his life. Oh, yeah. He sort of mutters it. <laughs> um, and then he points out that there's a, a light reflection in, in the background of yeah, one yeah. of the shots and stuff. So, yeah, it is all very honest. But, 
Yeah, I, I think I think that it is useful. It, a lot of it alludes to the pressure of going from being... And it was still an independent film. Yeah. Because they'd been ditched from a load of finance packages because they wouldn't change the script. Yeah. But it's definitely a step up budgetarily. It was about five million. Yeah, it was, was definitely... huge compared to anything he'd done definitely. before. And even though it didn't make a huge amount of money, I think it was, in it, at least initially, I think it was certainly instrumental in him getting body snatchers, which is also fantastic. Oh, 100%. And, that's, yeah. and that was 20 million. So, you know, yeah. he, he quadrupled his budget pretty quickly yeah and uh god can you imagine like working with him on body snatchers i fucking love his body snatchers oh me too Uh, absolutely me too but like if ever there was a guy that wasn't meant for the studio system yeah i think ferrara someone you pay at the end (laughs) don't want him with that kind of loose change rattling around when he's got to be at set at five in the morning exactly (laughs) so um i'd actually like to talk a little bit more about the lighting because it's something that i think that has thematic resonance and I really like it when directors do that it's something that I love about the thing that we didn't really discuss on the thing podcast but um the way that kind of blue is used to represent death and orange is to represent life and they're kind of always clashing in that film and I just think that's a really interesting use of lighting um like it's even like blue gets sort of shone down on dead bodies in the thing when there's no no light source, source really. yeah, yeah, yeah. and I love I love films that think about you know the the theme to that extent um, tonal theme tonal theme exactly and so for me King of New York does a similar thing where it feels like the gold represents you know the sort of the class system um, you know what he's aspiring to be a part of the sort of political side the upper class New York side and then you have the blues that represent the street. And there's that wonderful shot where he's looking out the window and they've sort of, you know... they've Yeah, yeah, yeah. The beautiful uh, printed New York skyline ex- that they're ex- shooting through the reflection of. Yeah, the, the, Absolutely gorgeous. they were given to use and they're like, we this can't use shit. this in, in the background of anything. So it's but either out of focus or ref- shot through the reflection. Yeah. It's so effective. It's, it's so effective and it's, it's probably... It's one of my favourite shots, but then you've kind of got the gold behind him and you've got the blue and it's like he's sort of transitioning. I've got a a theory about some background logic to this film that I've never heard anyone talk about and ties into the colour tone, the tonal stuff you're talking about. I think it's a vampire movie. Now, not actual vampires, but obviously they watch Nosferatu. These gangsters watch Nosferatu in a little cinema. Yep, true, true. uh, And the idea that these, like... At the at the height of like black gang crime in New York, eighties, you know, hip hop era, they all stop to go to a little art house cinema and watch Nosferatu. Is is quite away from the traditional stereotypes of that kind of character. The thing you have to remember about Nosferatu is when it was released, although it was shot in black and white, it was colorized for cinemas and the nighttime scenes, so that they could you could see what was going on, so they didn't have to shoot in darkness. Now, obviously, King of New York takes t- place entirely at night, uh, almost entirely at night. The um, do we ever see Frank White outside of nighttime? I don't think we do. We do, yeah. We do, okay. All right, I'm slightly scuffed this, but I'm going to go through anyway. Uh, <laughs> um, the, so stuff like... Um, when they colour us... When he takes his revenge on the cops, when he pulls up in the limo and... Oh, the, uh, the funeral scene. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, which is interesting, actually, because that's the scene that... Uh, one of the scenes that Ferrara is being pressured to take out. Uh, anyway, so yeah, so when they colour us Nosferatu, the day the nighttime scenes were blue and the daytime scenes were gold, orange, uh, to represent the temperature of the light because moonlight is blue and yes. tungsten, the internal filament lights, uh, and flame are all orange. So that's the 
the um, and sunlight is obviously it's orange as well. And so yeah, you talk about that class, like him yearning for the the gold of the of the New York elite. But also, gold is the color of a sunrise, is the morning, and he's looking to move to legitimize to move out of the darkness of. Uh, of the world he lives in, which is the vampiric night. Not only that, but you see so many scenes early on of him confronting people and then saying, come and work for me. And like a vampire bites someone and they become a vampire, he's just moving through the underworld, but pulling people into his fold. I mean, it's, it's, it's nice. I mean, the, the one slight flaw in it is that it's not, it, it's actually the, um, the, the Chinese gangsters that are watching Nosferatu. It, it's their cinema in Chinatown. But... I think that it's there as a metaphor for sure. I think that definitely they're playing around with, and the fact that he went on to make the addiction. And oh, with Walken again, yeah. Walken's in that as well. I definitely think there's something in that. I mean, he probably saw. I mean, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson sees There Will Be Blood as a monster movie, yeah. as a vampire movie, and it's the same kind of thing. It's someone moving into an area, but I and, and you know, stripping of its resources. But I do love that observation about how he kind of you know brings people into his crew like because it's very subtle yeah you know he says to the the kids that try to rob him on the subway you know come and work with me yeah, and then yeah. you I'll, see I'll, one I'll of down them, at this address yeah and you yeah. see one of them in the background of one of the scenes or a couple of the scenes um and, he, and it's the same with the italian gangsters. yeah when he goes in and fucking just keeps on shooting that guy there's one thing yeah which is brilliant <laughs> um ferrara says on the commentary that um walken was scared to um you point know to, point a gun yeah. at a fellow actor and then he improvised shooting him five times yeah, yeah, after yeah. he was down um which ferrara finds very funny um though he is it's, it's kind of weird like he takes offense to the idea of anything in the film being improvised i have a lovely quote and then points out <laughs> several bits that were improvised yeah but the improvisation <laughs> is always action so it's Walken dancing. Yeah, no, it's... not not always. Um, it's it's also Lawrence Fishburne, which is probably where the myth that it was improvised comes from, because Lawrence Fishburne's character was originally supposed to be white. Yeah, and so he did a lot of the character building for his character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you know, I, I appreciate that it took him five years to write it with with his writing partner, and I appreciate that all of these these words were carefully picked. But you can't deny that there's improvisation in this film because there's action and there's character so. yeah, yeah 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 but there's but whenever so the obviously that is what's your a, lovely quote a, oh it's it's only slightly related so I'll, oh, okay. I'll come back to it in a second yeah yeah um but the uh the the interview of the guy on the audio commentary with him um is obviously like quite into the idea that it was improvised he's heard this and so that's a question he asks a lot and ferrara keeps on saying you think this was fucking improvised this was all scripted of course this was fucking scripted you think you can make this shit up yeah. these guys are just saying the words yeah, yeah it's <laughs> and then at, at one point talking about artifice and style uh and like tying back into sort of the sunglasses at night thing but also whether or not it, the dialogue was improvised at one point Ferraris um, and talking about how rigorous and strict they had to be about everything yeah. like how controlled it all was uh, he says I wouldn't make another film like this if you put a gun to my head this is fantastic film uh, this is uh, fascistic filmmaking but that's what people want they want it laid down their throat they don't want to think about nothing <laughs> which is just a great description because he's like look we have to do it like this this is exactly what the people need yeah, this yeah. is lean and efficient and we can't divert from it yeah i mean absolutely and and again they did have to like he did have to cut corners he did have to make compromises um there's a moment sort of later on where he's criticizing like a shaky shot there's a shot in the film that he doesn't like 
And, um, you know, the moderator again is like, how would you do it differently? And Ferrara's like, I would have had it on tracks so you don't think fucking Jason's going to jump out and stab him. Um, (laughs) Which is great. So it's clear that, you know, they did have to, because of the the timeline they were shooting it on and all the rest of it, they did have to make compromises. But there's stuff that they didn't compromise on. I really admire the fact. And it's stuff that, you know, people who aren't involved in filmmaking wouldn't think twice about. Oh, yeah, completely. But it's the fact that, you know he changed all the lights in the subway train um, because, yeah. you know, he to wanted it. the temperature it. right. Exactly. And, and anyone watching that, there's no fucking way they'd know that. They'd yeah. assume that they just rocked up to the subway. And so I, I love that he points out stuff like that. Um, do you know the film that it was inspired by? King of New York. Do you know the film that he saw and decided to make this no, film? No, I don't think I do. Uh, the script was inspired by The Terminator... Really? Yep. Um, and it's basically Can I see that? yeah, and it's basically his attempt to make a crowd pleaser, which which it kind it, of is. It, it, it is, but it, it is it and just it isn't. at the wrong time. Yeah, yeah. It's it is exactly. so fucking yeah, yeah. cool. And he talks about the first screening they did at the uh, at um, New York Film Festival was at night, and everyone fucking loved it. Yeah. And the second one they did was in the morning, and everyone fucking hated it. Yeah. And I think that that's kind of the best films are often very divisive. Oh, I completely agree. Uh, but yeah. going back to what you were saying about the fact that you had to make compromise. I think that if you don't have to make compromises, then you're probably not stretching yourself. A hundred percent, yeah, absolutely. The second you get these films that have got so God, much yeah. money that they can just go back and do endless fucking reshoots or do test audience screenings and then start to bland it down to get more people into it, like lowest common denominator, homogenized yeah. bullshit. Like from personal experience, I've worked on films that have that have had that kind of luxury, and I think it's almost always to the detriment of the film this because is it, it stops being a vision. It starts being this collective, like, well, we need to try and please everybody, completely. and that means everyone's satisfied and no one's delighted. Yeah, and and it just films like that, you know, indie films. There's just a completely different energy to them. They have yeah. a completely different spirit. It's something that you can't really quantify, but. It's just a feeling you get when you watch it. Like I rewatched Crowhurst is out on DVD now, and I rewatched that, and it's it's definitely going to be my favorite. Spoiler alert! But it's definitely going to be number one um, at it's the end of spoiler. my. You've already said it on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, but not not all of this lot follow me on Twitter. The fools, right? Well, um, they, should, they should obviously should follow both of us on Twitter. At Sam Ashes, but yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, no, like, and, and you know, that was made with, with loads of restrictions and, you know, um, on a, a very low budget. And it's fucking amazing. Yeah. Like, it, it blew me away. First time I watched it, it blew me away. Second time I watched it, I'm probably going to watch it every year for the rest of my life. I've I love it. I've never seen a great film and then heard the director say, this was a really easy shoot. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's so weird. It's a, um, yeah, a mixture of compromise happy accidents making do they all seem to like channel the energies of these people yeah completely and so yeah i think i think we're kind of almost done really yeah, this loving mean, there's Abel. there's plenty more offensive things that i could quote from the commentary oh but you God. should go and listen yeah, to it do, do be yeah do be warned it's um it's th- there is certainly some problematic stuff especially when he's talking about the uh, the subway car, the cinematography choices and editing oh choices in the subway God. car is really and uncomfortable. Like, he makes some weird noises in this film. And, yeah, basically, yeah. he he can't get through an anecdote if it cuts to a woman while he's talking. Yeah, on the film, he just sort of stops and retro pervs. Yeah, on the women, so it is quite gross. 
And for anyone, also fascinating. for anyone who thought that he was progressive and pioneering for giving Christopher Walken uh, a couple of uh, female bodyguards, maybe don't listen to this commentary and, and hold on <laughs> to your thoughts about that. And, and he just makes some really weird statements. Like, there's a bit where he's talking about the car chase and the car crash. And he said that he talked to, like, um, some stunt guys from Road Warrior, one of my favourite films. Yeah, oh my God, um, yeah. And, and basically says that, that loads of people died making that film. I, I've never heard that before, is that... I don't... I, I should have looked that up. I don't... I haven't heard it, but I wouldn't be surprised if there was a death... Because low-budget, crazy action is dangerous. Oh, absolutely. But he, when he talks about Rogue War and he basically just... And, and again, this is another statement where he doesn't get a chance to follow the thread. Yeah. But he basically just says so many shots in that where guys are dead. And I just think... Like, well, but he, <laughs> the other, well, because he says, you know, they die, so you go back the next day, get coverage and still use it. Otherwise, they died for nothing. And it's like... I guess. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, um, you know, even if you don't ever listen to this audio commentary, you should watch this film. It is, you know, a a, a really, really, really great gangster movie. One that's kind of underrated. Like Dan said, it's very divisive. I know a lot of people that hate this film. Um, They find it boring, which I will never understand. They just need to watch it louder. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And maybe at night. But yeah, um, great. Not too late at night. Not when you're nearly 40. (laughs) <laughs> Dan, what recommendations do you have for this film? Uh, based on this film, okay, so you may disagree with me on some of these, but I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna start with Kiss of Death from 1995. Yeah, which is Barbette Schroeder. Really complicated, quite grim crime drama um, starring David Caruso. Uh, he's an ex-con who is seduced into going undercover by the police to take down uh, a, a, a sort of crazy gangster played by a very on-form Nicolas Cage. And it's got, I, I probably saw it not that long after I saw King of New York for the first time. Uh, it's not as good as King of New York. But I think it's an, it's an underrated film. It, it turned a lot of people off because it is just bananas overblown. Like, there's so much going on in it. But it's a really enjoyable gangster film. And I think it owes a lot to King of New York in its, in its style. It's sort of very loosely based on a film from the 40s. Oh, that's interesting. With the same name, Elazar Lipsky. But um, but yeah, if you haven't seen it, it's one of those ones that people don't really talk about very much anymore. I don't even know if it's like I, I don't think I've updated from my VHS of it. Um, but it's it's almost certainly on one of the video on demand platforms. Well. So is thinking. that is that a potential one for uh, for the old Arrow to get hold of? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it's I, I, to be honest. I I meant to rewatch it after after it was it sort of sprung to mind uh, while I was prepping for this, and I didn't get around to it. But um, so I'd probably need to rewatch it. It's definitely pretty dark. Um, it's it, like Ferrara's Sunglasses After Dark. It's like it's got a lot of choices that were made because they're cool right rather than like so a lot of it takes place in a strip club um and this is a strip club where it's just like you it's just horrific (laughs) like but like horrific because it's full of like people who will murder you right right Uh, first time you see Nicolas Cage he's bench pressing a a lady like he's lying on his back and lifting weights but the the weights are a lady which is like the sort of the ultimate form of of non-sexualized objectification which yes. shows how little Cage cares about he- other humans in general, but specifically women. Cage is all over the place, but in a very good, like in good Cage way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's really good. It's nice. really good. Great. 
obviously uh, Caruso's in King of New York. Yeah, Caruso. of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah, That's yeah. A, that, why would I disagree with you on that? I don't know. I thought maybe you'd seen it and didn't like it. A lot of people didn't like it. Oh, no, it's yeah, worth, yeah. It's worth checking out. No, no, that's a great one. Um, right, so my first recommendation is a film from 1984 called Fear City. Yeah. Um, it's another Abel Ferrara movie, obviously earlier than King of New York, but it has a similar kind of... Um, it's it's like he's doing a, another crowd pleaser, basically. It's yeah. one of his more sort of quote-unquote mainstream efforts. <laughs> yeah. um, obviously, it's, it's set in New York um, because, you know he's a bit of a fan of that city <laughs> and uh yeah it's it's about a serial killer um who's like amusingly uh really into martial arts um <laughs> and uh he's basically targeting strippers uh on on times square and Billy D. Williams and, and Tom Berenger have to yeah, track yeah. him down and stop him. Uh, it's got an early role, very early role for Melanie Griffith, who, um, oh, yeah. yeah, who, you know, Brian De Palma fans will know from Body yes. Double. Yeah. Um, and yeah, uh, it's just a really sort of silly, ridiculous, slightly sleazy kind of action thriller. It's got a slightly hilarious sort of end sequence, uh, third act moments. And uh, Billy D. Williams is awesome in it. And yeah, it's just kind of a, a fun film that would make a pretty good double bill with this one, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think so. So yeah, Fear City from 1984. And if you're in the States, it's got a lovely Blu-ray uh, by Shout Factory. Um, and who knows, maybe one day we'll see it on Arrow. Yeah, um, yeah, they, do release, they do release Abel Ferrara films. They do. So please, Arrow, give me a nice blue of Fear City. Be nice. That'd be nice. Yeah. My next recommendation is from 1989. It's Harold Becker's Sea of Love. Oh, okay, interesting. Uh, written by Richard Price. It's Al Pacino, kind of slightly moderated from the version of uh, Walken that he presumably was doing on the alternate cut. It's another, it's a, it's a murder mystery rather than a gangster film, but I think it's got some tonal connections. It also has a, um, it has a, a spoiler credit on the poster. Don't read the title block. <laughs> if you know anything about how credit contracts or, or credit order works, you can work out who the killer is from the credit <laughs> block. <laughs> so don't don't look at that. Yeah, it's a um, it, it feels like a sort of it feels like a mainstream Ferrara film, but not one that Ferrara made himself. A um, a serial killer is uh, killing men based on uh, dating profiles in a Lonely Hearts column in the newspaper. And so Al Pacino decides to go on a shitload of dates to try and flush out the killer. <laughs> it's really interesting that... Um, yeah, amazing recommendation. It's really interesting that we've both chosen so far serial killer movies, two serial killer movies, yeah. rather than gangster My movies. My first one was a gangster film. Yeah, no, no, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. but still. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Have, you got, have you got another serial killer movie for your fourth one? I sort of have, yeah. <laughs> it's not necessarily a, a serial killer, but so uh, the film is Vice Squad uh, from 1982. Have you seen this one? I don't know if I have. It's a very generic title. Who directed it? Uh, so it's Gary Sherman. I don't know if I have. Oh my God, you! this is a treat for you, Dan. So uh, to anyone listening to this, if you haven't seen the trailer for Vice Squad, then please go immediately to YouTube and, and look it up. It's one of the, the best trailers ever made. It's insane uh, because the film is sort of insane. It's not set in New York. It's, it's in L.A. But again, it's basically about um, 
uh, it's about prostitution uh, and the worst pimp uh, of all time, played by unbelievably by Wings Hauser, um, <laughs> who plays a character named Ramrod, who you'll never forget after you've seen this film. Um, and apparently, you know, the producers weren't convinced that Wings Hauser could play this character, and so um, he he went to an audition in character and basically <laughs> uh, physically assaulted them. And so they're like, "Whatever, man, take the part. <laughs> Just right. don't kill Let's us. Stop closing my fingers in this drawer." <laughs> Um, uh, yeah, I just looked at it on IMDb. I haven't seen it. I will definitely add it. To oh the my list. god, you're gonna love it so much, Dan. I, I, I wish I could watch it with you. You can. Uh, well, yeah, let's do that. Come on, watch it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I have it on DVD, so uh, we we will watch it. But uh, yeah, it's absolutely bonkers. It's really, it's quite sleazy. It's very nasty, but it's also sort of weird and funny and and yeah, just. It has one of the most insane subplots I've ever seen in a in a period of Americana when VHS was high and you could just get you could just make really weird shit. Yeah, Yeah. completely. And no one like really cared about how anyone's feelings being hurt either. So just getting some really weird, dark, sleazy shit happening. Yeah, just just um, uh, keep keep an eye out for an old man's fetish. Is all I'll say about this film. Yeah, it's fucking weird, but um, also it's it's actually. It reminds me of a Korean film or of Korean cinema in general in that it's so Just all over the place. Without genre, basically. Well, yes and no. It, it, it's almost like the Yellow Sea where you're like, okay, it's this type of film. Oh, no, it's this type of film. Holy shit, it's this type of film? Like, oh God, yeah. that last act in Yellow Sea. Oh, my God, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, Vice Squad, I very much recommend it. Right. Nice. Now it's time for, for more recommendations. More, yet more recommendations from our real lives. And that's what we do, first time listener. We make recommendations based on the past two weeks uh, of yeah. stuff that we have watched. So, so Dan, f- what have you watched? A film we've mentioned before, but I don't think it's been one of our recommendations, came up in conversation on Twitter, as these things often do. And I was inspired to dig out my DVD. Mm. And then I realised that there was a lovely special edition Blu-ray had just been put out in the States. So I went to see if I could get it, and it had sold out. And then I remembered that I know the people that own the label that put it out. So I emailed the lovely Andy Stark and Pete Toombs over at Mondo Macabro, uh, and they sent me a copy of their special edition of Who Could Kill a Child? Oh, nice. Uh, which I know you love, Sam. Yes, uh, we had a, a conversation a, a about this by favorite. text. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that what inspired you? It's an absolute beaut. No, no, I'd, I'd already emailed Andy by that point. But How I, weird. But that was around the same time as the Twitter conversations were happening. I think Richard Wells had just commented, like mentioned, Right, right. And we got into a chat about it, and yeah, it goes, went from there. Um, They have just released a non-special edition, which has all the same features. It's just missing some lobby cards, and I think it doesn't have a reversible sleeve. So Mm -hmm. it's still, it is available. It's definitely worth checking out. Basically, it's an interesting one. Uh, Narcissus Sarador did it in 1976. Uh, It was his second feature. His first feature is another favourite of Sam and mine. Uh, called The Boarding School in 1970, mm. which was his first film. Uh, he'd done a lot of TV before and after. The Boarding School was one of the most successful films in Spain and remained one of the most successful films in Spain for years. Mm. And he was basically allowed to do whatever he wanted for the second one. So he went, I'm going to do this. So they went, are you are you sure? <laughs> this is what you want to do? And you're going to start it like that? And he's like, yep, definitely, that's, <laughs> that's happening. <laughs> that's staying in. And actually now he says he thinks maybe it was a mistake. 
Um, oh, that's interesting. And that maybe he should have put it at the end, the, the opening stuff, uh, which mm. I was chatting to Pete the other day and uh, Pete Toombs, and he was saying, you can't put that at the end, people would leave. Um, well, it, that's when you want them to leave. <laughs> yeah, not at the beginning. <laughs> yeah. well, when I, so when I first got this, I was this was a recommendation years and years ago from regular mention on the podcast, our friend Tony Clark. And I, I got hold of a copy of it and I stuck it in and I turned it off in the first like five minutes. And I didn't go back to it for a year or two, uh, and then it came up in conversation with Tony again, and I was inspired to go back to it because it wasn't what I thought it was. It's called Who Can Kill a Child and Steal Yourself. It starts with about eight minutes of documentary footage of wars and the Holocaust and conflicts that and famine that particularly have a high infant mortality in them. Uh, and it's talking about like these things away from the shores of America and, and Spain um, where all these kids are dying. And it's very, very hard watching. And in the first few minutes, because I didn't know anything about it when I first watched it, I thought, fuck me, this is going to be an, you know, an 80-minute, 90-minute documentary about child death, and I can't handle this. So I turned it off. Um, I went back to it. It is a very, very dark opening. If you wanted to avoid it, seeing as the director is kind of sanctioned watching it without, there is a cut that's missing that opening on the disc. There's four different versions on the disc. I hope it isn't defaming Tony to say that a film that he recommended could very easily be a, a documentary about child death. Oh, no, um, I don't think it is. Like the, yeah, one of the wonderful things about having film chats with Tony and walking away with a handful of recommendations, things you've never heard of, things no, no one's heard of, is that... It's such a broad spectrum, and there's always something worthwhile about everything, even if you don't necessarily agree with him on everything. They're at least noteworthy, if not genuinely enjoyable. And um, uh, I, I should mention that the boarding school, uh, a.k.a. La Residencia, yes. a.k.a. the house, the house that, that Screamed, yeah. these are all the same thing. And uh, I actually recommended House That Screamed in our very first episode of the podcast. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, an amazing yeah. It's film. It's an amazing movie. Right, so I also did a revisit uh, in the past couple of weeks. This was not a first-time watch. This is a film that um, I watch every year, and I just realised that I've never sort of talked about it on the podcast, and this is such an important film to me that, you know, there was a time where I was considering... Uh, I've got an upcoming big birthday and was considering screening this film um, oh, for my birthday. It's a very, very important film. Um, it's called Z Channel, A Magnificent Obsession. Um, I've not seen that. And oh my God, for, you know, it's, it's a documentary, but for cinephiles, it's the ultimate documentary. Oh. Um, yeah, the the one by Zan Cassavetes. And it's basically about... Uh, you know, Z Channel itself, which was one of the first sort of pay-per-view channel uh, cable station, um, which screened movies, but the most incredible movies you've ever seen. Just really weird, eclectic stuff from around the world. And, and this was at a, a time where, you know, uh, people in the States didn't necessarily have access to weird Italian movies yeah, yeah. or like you know, Spaghetti Westerns or, you know, Fellini. Uh, and basically, if you're a fan of the Criterion Collection, um, Z Channel is 
where they got all of their films in the <laughs> early days. Um, like, it, it's quite interesting. Like, if you look at the, you know, there are lists online of uh, everything Z Channel ever played, and you can actually use it to make predictions still of what Criterion are going to release in the really? future. Like, seriously, it's quite amazing. Yeah, and it was run by this guy, Jerry Harvey, and unfortunately he had quite a, a very tragic end to his life. But while he was alive, he introduced people to some of the greatest movies ever made and inspired directors to kind of start their careers off the back of these these movies. I won't list the directors, just watch the documentary because it has such an amazing mix of all of these people who who grew up on Z Channel or, you know, had their careers resurrected by Z Channel. It's just an amazing documentary for film lovers. Um, I can't recommend it highly enough. It's only available on DVD in this country, no Blu-ray, um, but Metrodome released it. I believe our friend Giles Edwards selected it, acquired it, and he's got great taste. Yes, he does. So yeah, uh, Z Channel, A Magnificent Obsession from 2004. If you love movies, you will love this documentary. It's amazing. Nice. Cool. I will add it to my list. Hooray, sure. I've given you a couple of good you ones. Have, yeah. My next one is a slightly weird film. Uh, it's a Russian film from 1973. It's called Ivan Vasilievich Changes His Profession. It was released in America briefly under the subtitle Ivan Vasilievich Back to the Future. It was made in 73, but it was based on a play written in the 30s, which puts it in a very interesting place culturally, because it was written while Stalin was still alive, and then it was made into a film uh, under Khrushchev during his like dismantling or de-Stalinization of Russia. And it's interesting how it sort of fits between the two, because it, it employs, a, in parts, it employs a sort of... Uh, uh, Wizard of Oz, black and white to colour transition. Um, it's obviously it, it's interesting what it says socially about Russia at the time, but it's also just tremendous fun. It's a sci-fi comedy with musical elements. It's about a scientist who creates a time machine, and then when his girlfriend, uh, long-term girlfriend, decides to leave him for her director. She's an actress, singer. He decides he's going to actually start up the machine and he accidentally sends back a, a, a burglar who's been burgling his next-door neighbour and a census taker, a uh, very officious man, uh, accidentally sends them back to the time of Ivan the Terrible, swapping them for Ivan the Terrible, <laughs> who then ends up in 1976, communist Russia. Um, the census taker and Ivan Vasilievich, Ivan the Terrible, uh, are played by the same actor and each has to adopt sort of the role of the other. Although Ivan the Terrible doesn't really try, he just wanders around threatening people with a knife <laughs> uh, and complaining that the, the, the vodka's weak. Um, but back in the olden days, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's wonderful. It's got stop motion elements, it's got like really weird little sight gags, uh, it's got some like Benny Hill type chases thrown in. Uh, but it's also got like sort of lurid technicolor social commentary as well. It's it's really fun. It really sounds like a, a Czech comedy. It's Russian, is it? It's Russian. Yeah. 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 It really sounds like um, that that period of like weird time travel uh, yeah. comedies that were being made in Czechoslovakia. The 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 Eastern European like film output around that time from the late sixties all the way through to the late seventies. There was a lot of sci-fi. Some of it very very grim. Uh, like Golem and War of the Worlds, 
uh, and then you've got a lot of comedy stuff as well, like Ken Zadza and this. And it, they were sort of experimenting with how to deal with all the changes that were happening. And obviously sci-fi is a genre that's really ripe for allegory. Uh, it's the easiest place to, to sort of hide your messages. Absolutely. Yeah, there's some great stuff there. You've recommended a couple in the past. Yeah, uh, again. Check both, I think, weren't they? Yeah, they yeah, were. Yeah, like, yeah. I killed Einstein, gentlemen, and... And tea. Tomorrow yeah, I'll wake up and yeah. score myself with tea. Again, I think these are both from our first episode, so that's quite interesting. Are they? Yeah. Yeah, but that is a fantastic recommendation for me. Like, that yeah, you'll absolutely love it. so up my street. It's ridiculous. Yeah, wonderful. Great. So uh, my next recommendation, based on the past couple of weeks, is... A film from 1956 called A Girl in Black. Now, this is a Greek film um, directed by Mihalis Kakadianis. Apologies if I've mispronounced that, but um, it is A Girl in Black is, and and actually weirdly, it would make a really great double bill with uh, Who Could Kill a Child. Um, it's about this very close-minded community in a small Greek island. And basically an outsider comes in, a tourist comes in and from the city who's, you know, more cosmopolitan and all the rest of it. And the the local community don't don't like the tourists. Um, but he, he basically falls in love with one of the local girls uh, played by Ellie Lambetti, which is one of the best leading female performances I've I've ever seen. She is fucking amazing um and yeah i i imagine that there's not many people listening to this who's actually seen this film so there's a real gem of a performance waiting for you here it's available on uh a, i think it's a greek dvd but it's all region and um it's got english subtitles so um it's called a girl in black um from 1956 and so yeah you've you've got this kind of kind of dark love story um at the center of it but then it takes a turn in the third act where i literally could not believe what i was watching um it's one of the darkest things i've ever seen <laughs> and and yeah and then you know it all kind of leads to well i, I won't say because i don't want to give it away but um yeah a girl in black goes from being this kind of um, outsider romance to being essentially one of the most hardcore horror films i've ever seen um and and not intentionally like they definitely wouldn't have seen this as a horror film but holy shit one of the scenes in this film is so harrowing but yeah and and you know you can't guess what what it is that i'm talking about like you know it's a turn that that kind of really comes out of nowhere so yeah girl in black from 1956 really underseen you know a real lost gem so you know i i can't recommend it anymore that it's, sounds it's awesome. so good uh yeah i just checked and it is available both on ebay and amazon yeah it's um, on amazon yeah, so yeah. yeah you can you can pull them in uh there are four in stock on amazon at the moment so well so our you first know. lucky four listeners <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> well, three i think probably <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah Cool. So that's that's it yeah, for thank recommendations. Yeah, really good, uh, really good stuff. Yeah, me too. Actually, yeah, it's been a good one. Um, let's move on to 
Extra features. Extra features? Extra features. Extra features. Extra features. There are no extra features. <laughs> <laughs> so we're just going to give you our uh, social media uh, information because, you know, that's like an extra feature yeah, like in, in itself. Like in, the, like in the Twilight Days of DVD when the extra features were like a link to, an, to online content, you can just get me and Sam wittering about shit on Twitter as an extra feature. Absolutely. I mean, you know, yeah. yeah. So, Dan, how can people... Uh, Peer into your mind. At 13fingerfx uh, on Twitter. I talk intermittently about film, occasionally politics and dogs. Follow me. <laughs> Ask me questions. Yes, and he will give you truthful answers. <laughs> and thus, I will never be hired by Disney. <laughs> Dan, you can't joke about that. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? Who knows? Who knows where that will be by the time this yeah. that we're recording where in advance hell. will be. Um, <laughs> uh, you can find me on Twitter at Sam Ashurst S A M A S H U R S T, and uh, you will find the promotion of a film that I haven't mentioned once on this uh, podcast, but I made it and everything. Um, and you can also find me reviewing upcoming films uh such as uh, a film that will be out by now but uh extra recommendation i fucking loved mission impossible fallout it is fucking amazing oh i'm really looking forward to it yeah I'm see really, it at really IMAX. sam invited me to a, a preview screening of it and i couldn't go and i'm gutted i, I like the franchise anyway yeah um, me too i i think cruise is actually quite a good action hero still despite all the madness i really love christopher mccrory um, I was really, really looking forward to seeing what he's done. So yeah, I'm going to try and catch that on the big screen. What's bonkers screen. about the Mission Impossible series is uh, it's been going for 22 years uh, with the same lead, without a reboot. I have gone from working as a cinema rusher to being a, a film journalist to directing my own film in the period that these films have been coming out. Yeah. And they just get better and better. The latest one is the best one. Really? Um, I mean, I love the first one, obviously. It's De Palma and all the rest of it. But there are uh, sections and sequences in this film where I just literally sat there with my mouth open going, holy holy shit yeah I think how do they top this it's interesting like i think you, you alluded to this on twitter slightly as well and obviously it's much discussed you know uh the the stunt stuff like yeah. him doing his own stunts and all that kind of stuff but i think that in the same way that practical effects have had a bit of a resurgence you know and the star wars films have been trying to use more practical and obviously abrams was in was abrams involved in the mission impossible yeah, yeah he did the third one and in fact i interviewed him about his, his yeah. first film yeah 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 and it's like uh, and, and I think that there's a similar mentality behind why it's so effective to have real stunts rather than CGI ragdolling. Because you see all this stuff going on and that's actually Cruz hanging off that plane. That's actually Cruz doing all that stuff. And it goes mm. back to the excitement of the old, like Jean-Paul Belmondo films. Like this guy's actually risking his life for your, am uh, for, your for, amusement. For, for me, it goes back to like Buster Keaton. Oh, absolutely. Like, yeah, it, yeah, it's, yeah. it's that level of... And, and the fact that, you know... All of these many decades later, you still get such a thrill from someone yeah. hanging off a vehicle. Yeah. You know, whether it's a train back then or, or you know. Oh, my God. Keaton throwing the, the, the jams, the, oh, the beams exactly. in the front of the train. I would have died if that had gone wrong. Yeah. And this is it. It's exactly the same appeal. And it's pure cinema. And thank God that 
and you know, for for all that you that people can say about Cruz, right? And there's plenty of things that you can say about him um, if if you're a detractor. But the fact that he has this dedication to cinema, he hates digital filmmaking, yeah. um, and and so insists that they, all these films are shot on film. Um, and the fact that he's willing to basically die for the sake of a good action film, yeah. for the sake of the sixth film in a in a you know inspired by a teleseries action film franchise, you know I I have to admire him for that. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Mission Impossible Fallout, go see it. That's the end of this podcast. Yeah, that's a good note. Oh, actually, we have uh, an email. Uh, a lovely email, which we always appreciate, coming in from our dear, dear listeners. Um, this one from Oni Babadook, a uh, lovely little uh, contraction of two great films there. Uh, they say, uh, love the podcast, uh, and I want to start by thanking you for opening my eyes to the wonderful world of uh, Kuniet Arkin and 80s Turkish cinema, which I think was probably from a, a recommendation of Sam's. In a, in a previous podcast. Yep, that's right. Yeah. Um, Death Warrior, one of the oh, great yes, films yeah, ever made. Oh, yes, it was. Death Warrior, you recommended. We've, we've chatted a bit about some others as well. There's some, mm-hmm. some fun stuff. Uh, I'm gradually exploring this newly discovered wing of the Trash Cinema Library, and I am loving every incomprehensible movie. <laughs> so that's exactly the kind of feedback we like. They say, You both frequently mention how nostalgia can influence your enjoyment of films. That is, how watching a film at a specific point in one's early life can lead to a soft spot for that film in later life that no one else can quite understand or maybe agree with. Apologies if this question has come up before. It hasn't. But I am interested if you have also been affected by the reverse, i.e. you hated a film so much when you saw it in your younger years that you either, A, absolutely refused to rewatch it to this day, despite recommendations, or B, relented in the face of peer pressure, rewatched the film and still cannot push past the tarnish of your earlier experience, or C, succumbed to repeated recommendations and discovered a gem such that you wish you could go back to your younger days and give yourself a slap for not getting it the first time around. Uh, I certainly have films in all three categories. I would love to hear your experiences. Keep up the words from Ben uh, or Oni Babadook at Oni Babadook on uh, on Twitter. Thank you so much, Ben. Sam, you any thoughts on this? Um, I would like to you to go first because you're more prepared than me. Because yeah, because I... I read that email, so I had the yeah. had it seconds ahead of you, <laughs> milliseconds. Yeah, well, I mean, I think we kind of covered it a little bit in this. Not insofar as I didn't, I, I never disliked King of New York, but. But obviously, I think I've appreciated it differently as I've got older, and I think that that's probably the main change. I don't know. Like, I'm I'm trying to think of things I loved. You didn't ask about things I loved and still love, and everybody <laughs> else thinks I'm a fool for. Um, yeah, no, I think like you know, I, I liked it for its very superficial things, the coolness, the violence, all that kind of stuff. And then as I got older, and I saw like more in the characters and more, you know, what it was about. Although obviously, it is a cool movie as we've discussed i think as you as you watch films again and again as you get older you see things that weren't there in exactly the same way that adults watching disney films modern disney films with their kids can they get a whole level of jokes that just aren't there for the younger audience um, i'm trying to think of something that i resisted uh earlier on and then came around to uh i don't really yeah I, I don't think i have an example of that the only thing that i can think of that's kind of relevant is that I watched, uh, the first time I saw Magnolia, you know, I thought it was a fantastic film. Um, There was a a, a slight element of 
I felt like it was a kind of a list film in that um, Paul Thomas Anderson had kind of written a, a list of stuff that he wanted to put into a film. A Star Wars. Um, were you, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not relevant. It, please explain, Dan. That Star Wars is the list film. That's, like, that's the first place I ever heard of. Lucas was advised, write down a list of all the cool shit you want to see in a movie... Okay. Put it in a film. That's, I don't think that's. I've never heard that. Is I'm that absolutely. Well, maybe I'm completely fucking making that up. But I, I think, mean, considering your level of Star Wars expertise, Dan, I totally look, trust I you. I am an absolute expert <laughs> in all things Star Wars. <laughs> I mean, Lucas definitely. There was a, a list of influences for sure, but I'm talking about something slightly different, which is that you know, um, oh, you know, I'm I'm interested in the fact that it rains frogs and. Oh, I'm interested in child stars, and do you know what I mean? Um, oh, I'm interested in a cop who's lost his gun. Like, it, it very much felt like uh, all of those things. That, yeah, that yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, the first time I saw it, even though I was very impressed by it, magnificent performance from Tom Cruise, you know, beautifully directed, just an astonishing, impressive movie. But that was it. I found it kind of more impressive than something that I connected to emotionally. But then, you know, I've watched it multiple times over the years. And, um, I, you know, this is a little bit intense, a little bit dark for the podcast. But, you know, I, I suffered a bereavement in my family. And the first time I watched it after that happening, and Paul Thomas Anderson, you know, um, made it, it... It was linked to the death of his dad, basically. And the first time I watched it, you know, after I'd, I'd suffered my own bereavement, I was like, holy fuck, this film is unreal. Like, in terms of how it gets across grief and sort of... There's, there's kind of a weird period after someone passes where it's almost like you're in this weird sort of shock where you feel kind of distant from everything... And you start to spot all of these weird coincidences, yeah, almost yeah. like magic realism. It's really fucking weird. And Magnolia is the best expression of that I've ever seen. So while it's not necessarily a film that I didn't like when I first saw it that I appreciated later, Magnolia is a film that, you know, when I got older and had kind of more life experience, I was like, oh, my God, this film is insanely good. And it's now, you know, one of my sort of top five uh, films ever. So, yeah, kind of. Kind of an answer yeah, that's to your good. question. I think, uh, uh, interestingly, like I'm uh, obviously you're a, a an, an outspoken uh, adorer of Mr. PTA. Oh, I love him. Uh, you love his stuff. I'm a little less uh, into his stuff. Uh, Magnolia is the one that I really, really enjoyed. Although I haven't seen it for years, I yeah. would like to watch it again. I think it honestly of, gets better with every watch. I'm absolutely certain it yeah, does. Yeah. It's a very layered film. It's very good. I'm a big fan of Cops Lost His Gun. Yeah. Which is going back to our Star Wars thing. Obviously, there's a there's a yeah, beautiful there is. Kurosawa. Yeah, yeah, there is. Yeah. Um, uh, Stray Dog. Yeah. Stray Dog is just absolutely fucking incredible. Uh, Stray Dog and uh, Hidden Fortress. What a pair of films. Yes. But yeah, so, but I think that... Hidden Fortress really is related to Star Wars. Star Wars. Stray Dog yeah. is related yeah, yeah, yeah. to Magnolia. Right, yeah. Car struggle. Oh, I can't sex with her because she's my ward slash sister. The thing about a really great filmmaker is they'll be able to sort of pluck these strings that are that will resonate and you won't necessarily be in tune to them the first time you watch them. And then as you move through life and you become susceptible in the same way that you hear different frequencies at different times in your life, you'll be able to pick them out. So in the same way that when you're a teenager and you're in love for the first time, you start to see what all these songs mean. Like, oh my God, it's like they were written about what I'm feeling. Uh, I think that a good filmmaker can do that with a lot of different emotional uh, emotional states. And you do become attuned to a particular like wavelength of information. So and you I actually see think things 
as as your life experiences stack up and you revisit these pieces of art with a great filmmaker, there will be new layers as you peel the film back. And, and I actually think music is a really good sort of metaphor for this because uh, some of the best albums, you know, uh, uh, albums that you hear the first time and you can't quite get into it and you kind of, because it's by one of your favourite bands or something, you'll go back to it, give it another try. You'll be like, oh, okay, no, this is working. And then the more you listen to it, the more you get into it. I mean, uh, Zodiac, which is another film that... I admired the first time I saw it, but it's another film where every time I watch it, I'm like, holy fuck, how film. did he do this? Like, yeah, it's 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 slightly unusual in terms of its structure and in terms of, you know, traditional filmmaking, which I think is why the first time I watched it, I was more impressed with it than sort of connecting with it. But yeah. again, like a great album, the more I watch it, the more I see the sort of the detail and... It's just, yeah. And the more your experience, like the thing is, especially early in life, all of the art you consume is made by people older than you. It's made by people who've had a greater life experience than you. And so they've experienced love and loss and all these things that you maybe haven't yet at Mm. that age. And so as you get older and you kind of catch up with where they were when they made it, your experiences align. Yeah. And you're able to see, oh, fuck me, I see what they were saying with this. That's incredible. This is it. I mean, I saw Zodiac years before I was menaced by the Zodiac killer. (laughs) So Way before Ted Cruz just turned up at your house. (laughs) (laughs) We have uh, another thing we need to mention, isn't there, Dan? Yes. I'm very excited about this. Me too. Uh, obviously, we were both uh, present at Aravidia Fright Fest. Was it Aravidia Fright Fest last year? It was just Fright Fest last year. Yeah. It's Aravidia Fright Fest this year. Better, yes. better than you improved. Much better. Uh, introducing the villainess, uh, and then also also Sam had a short in the in the selection. But um, this year we return to spend slightly longer on stage. If you can stomach that. What are we doing, Sam? We are going to be recording a live podcast. It's going to be a different kind of podcast. Uh, We're going to have guests. We're going to show clips. But it will basically be the sort of normal nonsense, us rambling on. Um, Now, that's at the Cineworld Discovery uh, on Leicester Square. And that's at 1.30pm on Saturday, the 25th of August. Tickets are free, which, you know, I'm not especially happy about. I feel like they should be £100 each, but they are free. Um, so Keep out of the riffraff, Sam. Yeah, exactly. A, a certain level, a certain like class of clientele. We love you all and we want to see you all there. We really do. Um, Tickets are free, but you have to bring receipts for five Arrow purchases with you. That's not true, I'm sorry. You have to pass an exam uh, based on uh, the, the previous, uh, however many it is, podcasts we've done. See, I failed the exam. Trivia, I don't even know how many we've exam. done. <laughs> well, you could just choose any number under like 30. Yeah, and be it's, it's roughly based that. Based on the last 10 we've done. It's roughly we'll have, that. Uh, we'll have some questions. But yeah, no, we really want to see you there and um, we'll try and involve you in the podcast. And, um, and yeah, so that's happening. Please come along. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Oh, no, not yet, Sam. Everybody go and review and rate the podcast, subscribe, blah, blah, oh, recommend God. it. Sam hates it when I do this, but I think it's really Who important. Cares? I care. Why? You care. Arrow cares. Care. You care they deep down care. inside. They care. We've got they loads care. of listeners. We've got loads of listeners. We could always have more listeners, Sam. All right. Well, listen, I don't care about those future imaginary listeners. I care about you, dear listener. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs> and we promise we'll be more professional next time. On especially, our lives. Especially me. Right. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye.